0: Hello and welcome to The Blockchain and Us, where pioneers and thought leaders talk about their journey in blockchain technology, crypto assets, and the token economy. And I'm your host, Manuel Staggers. If you enjoy this podcast, please give it a top rating and review on iTunes, and feel free to follow me on Twitter at Manuel Staggers. This episode is brought to you by Descartes Finance. Descartes is the leading Swiss digital wealth manager, providing its products and services to individuals, family offices, charitable organizations, banks, and asset managers. Its investment strategies lead the way. They harness the largest know-how as only a digital investment advisor can. To learn more, please visit wwwdecartes financecom My guest today is Steve Wilson, a digital identity innovator from Sydney in Australia. Steve has a double degree in physics and electrical engineering and has focused on digital identity and privacy since 1995. Steve is a vocal critic of many blockchain applications, especially in identity and health services. He holds several patents and is responsible for breakthroughs in identity infrastructure and governance, authentication frameworks, public key infrastructure, smart cards, digital credentials, fraud control and privacy engineering, and he has advised national ID frameworks in several countries. Steve founded the Lockstep Group in 2004 and has been VP and Principal Analyst at Constellation Research since 2013, where he leads digital safety and privacy. And now to the interview. Hello, Steve, and thank you very much for making time today.
1: Hey, Manuel. It's a great pleasure.
0: Steve... We already conducted two interviews in the past, and the last one was in Silicon Valley about a year ago. And recently I saw you wrote an article called Identity is Dead. Can you explain what this means?
1: Yeah, you bet. Look, um, clearly I'm being a bit provocative, but, but I, I'm calling on people to, to rethink what we're trying to do in identity management. It's, some, it, it's been a long road to get almost nowhere. In, in a lot of the grand plans for identity, um, we've been working on federated identity. And I should say that I mean that by federated identity, I mean the, the grand vision of, of having a much smaller set of identities where we can um, share identities between banking and government and healthcare. There was a an expression of this I, uh, ideal when the uh, White House started its national strategy for trusted identities in cyberspace. mm mm-hmm. um, at the beginning of the Obama administration, so we're going back eight or nine years, and the vision was that um, a student would be able to um, get up in the morning and use her student card to log on to her bank um, or could equally use her bank ID to log on to a health system. So that was the vision, and, you know, it rolls off the tongue. It's something that we experience in social identity all the time. I can log on to all sorts of things using my Twitter handle, and that's pretty cool. Mm, right, But the grand plan of being able to share, you know, let's call them serious identities across healthcare government banking, um, with with a few exceptions, it's never happened. Um, absent legislation, it certainly never happened. And NSTIC in the US National Strategy Trusted Identity in Cyberspace went for six or seven years and, and never quite achieved that goal. So... Um, that's what I mean by identity is dead. the The idea that we can have a digital identity that is so powerful, to me, is something that is just remains out of reach. Um, you know, it embarrasses me that every time the identity have an argument or a debate about identity, w- we fall back to glossaries and definitions, and we talk about authentication and identity and attributes. And oh my God, um, it's fundamentally flawed. I, I don't think it's ever going to happen that way. And so when I say identity is dead, I mean, why don't we just kill the idea that identity could be constructed in this mythological way? Because it ain't happened for the last 10 or 15 years. And I think we're wasting our time. So <laughs> that's where I'm coming Interesting. from. Interesting.
0: Yeah, it's it's a good point. I Just um, in the last few months, I've seen there were a few blockchain identity projects started in Switzerland. I mean, there's something called Zug Identity. There are several yeah. um, identity startups, you know, that want to do. One is doing identity on the Bitcoin blockchain, and others use use uh, other blockchains. I mean, have you have you looked into those as well?
1: Uh, look, I don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of these things anymore. Um, there are so many identity uh, blockchain ideas out there, and. Um, you know, I, I might have told you the story about how I first got into blockchain and identity because three years ago there was this strange um, phenomenon out there where every blockchain identity startup was really uh, coming from a blockchain entrepreneur or a blockchain advocate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there were almost no identity people out there doing blockchain identity. I noticed that in 2015. I noticed that uh, all of the blockchain identity companies um, fire and fury was coming from the blockchain side.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Now, I remain very perplexed by most of these. I can talk about one or two identity um, distributed ledgers that that do make a lot of sense and that they're coming from a very balanced position. But Mm -hmm. there continues to be a perplexing number of startups that think that there's something about this immutable distributed ledger that in and of itself provides an identity solution. And um, a lot of it's misguided. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I have to say that most of what you read about the blockchain remains wrong. And most of what you read about blockchain and identity um, is often just full of category errors.
0: I mean, that has been your your view for, for a while. I mean, the last interviews I've, I've uh, heard or seen or read with you you always described how people still misunderstand the idea what a blockchain really is and what it can do. I mean, in in your view, why would using a blockchain be a bad idea?
1: Well, let's go back to what the original pub, public blockchains were for, um, and they they solved an unsolvable problem, which was um, Alice and Bob want to want to use cryptocurrency. They want to exchange. Real amounts of money between each other, but they want to do so in a decentralised environment without any intermediaries. And for about thirty years, we've had various forms of niche cryptocurrency which worked with digital intermediaries. The problem with is double spend. You know, if if I've got some digital money and I can copy it because it's just ones and zeros, um, how does the system stop me, you know, bad Steve, copying my money over and over and spending it twice? So. We always thought that you'd need some sort of cop like a like an umpire or a, or an intermediary to, to um monitor every single transaction. And the the, the, those were the first
0: of... uh, those were the first e-cash ideas, right, where you always had exactly. somebody still looking at all the transaction and making sure that they actually are valid.
1: Right. ECash and digi-cash was the product name for something that was very clever and about 30 years old. Now that was unpalatable to um The libertarians and the and the real sort of um, cryptocurrency geeks were were always frustrated by that. And um, the the interesting and powerful thing about Nakamoto's invention, um, coming as it did right in the middle of the financial crisis, was um you know we, you know we um the community um, finds banking problematic, and the the libertarians you know find banking completely distasteful. So they want to find a way of doing cryptocurrency um, just peer to peer. Yeah, and. You still need to watch every single currency movement in the Bitcoin network, but what Nakamoto did was that they crowdsourced the surveillance of the um, of the crypto movements, and that was just genius. Not only crowdsourced it, but figure out a, a way of incentivizing mm-hmm. um, you know, thousands of computers to do this volunteer work mm-hmm.
0: with with so the miners.
1: With the miners, the, um, the Bitcoin miners are, are rewarded for um, turning a lot of computer cycles into. Um, looking after the network, so it was it was genius. Look, I have to say it was genius, but also as a as a thought experiment, it cracked the problem. It cracked that unsolvable problem. Um, what's happened since Bitcoin is that there's been an enormous amount of innovation, and you and I talked about this. It was like the Wright brothers' flyer. Yeah, people saw it. Um, they tried to copy it, um, but a lot of really serious engineers looked more deeply at it and and tried to replicate some properties of blockchain. Um, for the enterprise. So we've had um, R3 and Quarter, um Hyperledger Fabric especially, um, a lot of the new work being done by Microsoft and IBM, and a group called Hedera Hashgraph. Um, these are really serious engineering projects that have replicated in a very sort of selective way some of the blockchain properties, and
0: they're doing things that are
1: you know, inspired by blockchain but are really,
0: at the heart, quite different. So, but yeah. what these what these projects did they they tried to uh, they tried to separate the currency from the blockchain idea, correct?
1: Yeah, they did. the The, the newer ledgers in general um, are, are concerned with much bigger use cases than just cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, paradoxically, perhaps cryptocurrency is a really simple um, use case. It's very simply stated. You know, Alice and Bob want to exchange real value without any intermediaries. It's a very simple and actually a very special use case. It's special in the sense that a physicist will talk about a special case, um, not the general case. And um, the special case of cryptocurrency is very special. There's, there's nothing like it in normal business. Um, normal business, you don't have the luxury of getting rid of intermediaries or getting rid of umpires or getting rid of standards and, um, and administration. So to that extent, cryptocurrency is really special, and um, the, you know, if we could get technical for a minute—not terribly technical—but mm-hmm. sure. the challenge, the challenge in um, in most crypto systems, crypt- cryptography systems, is what's called key management. So I think people know that at the heart of a Bitcoin wallet is a thing called a private key, and it's a the private key is your personal key into the system. It's a it's a cryptographic code that needs to be safeguarded. You need to keep it in a Bitcoin wallet. Um, ideally, it's a piece of hardware, a hardware wallet that you that you keep secure. Or maybe you protect it with a pin or whatever. But that's your personal key into the system. The amazing thing about Bitcoin is that nobody knows where the keys are. Nobody knows which person belongs to which key. Um, in, in the original blockchain, it, it really didn't matter. And in a sense, it, it shouldn't matter because there was this um, total self-registration. So nobody knew which keys went with which person. If you happen to lose your key, then it was just understood that you were on your own. It was wild west. Um, obviously, many people have lost their hard drives and in, in, um, they've thrown them into the council tip yep. accidentally. Um, I've even got a a pet theory that I think that Satoshi Nakamoto actually fried their own private key. I think that's the best explanation for why why Nakamoto's fortune has never been spent. Um, I think it's possible that, that Nakamoto lost their private key.
0: Really? And had a, a record. <laughs> so, well, it can happen to the best of us. It can
1: happen to the best of us. Now, you know in a way, you know, I want you to imagine a, a sort of a swarm of of private keys sort of out in the ether. Um, there's there's tens of millions of these private keys floating around and they command the movement of cryptocurrency from one key to another, to another, to another. And it's a wild sort of um, swarm, literally a swarm of, of private keys that do happen to be under the control of individuals, but nobody cares. You, you fundamentally don't care that Alice has a particular key or Bob has a particular key because the Bitcoin um network sorts it out. It, it sorts out that through that possible chaos of cryptographic movements, um, Alice's key only ever gets used once um, per transaction, and, and cryptocurrency flows from Alice to Bob to Eve to Carol to mm-hmm. Pete and so on. And the magic of blockchain is that it doesn't need key management. Um, people self-enroll, they set up their own wallets, they load them up with money and away they go. Now, that is, it comes back to my idea that that's really special, Um, There's nothing like that in normal business. Um, There's nothing like that in healthcare, for example. I mean, you absolutely need to know that this patient, Steve Wilson, has a particular key. And um, you need to know that a doctor has a key and that a nurse has a key and that a medical researcher has a key. And you just don't have that sort of weird luxury of of
0: not caring whose key goes with which person. That goes back to identity. We need to know people really are who they say they yeah, are. Well,
1: it does, and that's that's why this is sort of a long story. And I thank you for, um, for bearing with me. <laughs> um, in identity, it's the exact opposite. Identity, you 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 need to know who goes with which key. So the funny thing about blockchain, the original public blockchains, is that they're fundamentally unlike identity. If you've got a system that can, that can um, tolerate that lack of key management and still move real money from one person to another, it's a special case. Um, the reason why blockchain is so elaborate and so expensive and, um, and, and it, the reason why it takes 10 minutes to decide um, that a transaction is valid is that you don't have key management hmm,
0: interesting point
1: you come along with any use case you know my favorite contra example is the refugee identity case um, you know the giving digital identities to refugees is a, is a keen problem and you know'm I'm, I'm as energetically in favor of, this, of that as the next libertarian um, we want to get people up to speed in the digital world we want to close the digital divide we want to get people, um, engage with banking we want to um, get the unbanked um, connected to digital um, commerce so there's this vague idea that blockchain is the way to do that but when you when you dig into it um, the way that people enact and um, and live their digital lives is usually through a mobile phone of some sort and that's great that's real goodness um, the mobile phone is a powerful tool for sure and it needs some identity but you know what For a refugee to have a mobile phone, they they need a mobile phone account. They need to be connected to a cellular network. And to get a mobile phone account, they need to be identified first. So the funny thing about most of the refugee use cases I see is that they start with a mobile phone, which means that they must start with identity Mm -hmm. before the blockchain comes along and does any magic. Um, And and once again, if you can solve key management, then I don't think you need the great big glorious public... um, blockchains of Ethereum and Bitcoin, you may need a different ledger and, um, you know, maybe we should talk about some of the identity management projects that are using new ledgers and and they've been quite clever and and quite careful. But, you know, to rule the line underneath it, I, I just don't see that the public blockchains have the sort of properties or, and they're not they're just not engineered for the sort of problem that we have with identity. Mm-hmm.
0: yeah, i I see your point. I mean, I don't understand all of it. I'm not very technically versed. Uh, mostly, I focus on the stories right behind behind these phenomena. So but still, what what I understand is that you're saying it's very hard to separate the idea of currency from the public blockchains, and it's also very hard. To mix on-chain and off-chain, and put it together on the same blockchain.
1: Yeah, look, that that's absolutely key. Um, most, um, you know, blockchain thinkers are at pains to tell you that blockchain and Bitcoin, for example, are different, and that you know, distributed ledger technologies. Are don't necessarily have a coin or a token. And all of that is true. But if you go back to the to the public blockchains, um Ethereum and Bitcoin, yeah. separating the cryptocurrency is not simple. Um, it, it to me, it's a bit like trains and railway tracks. you know the the train is technically separate from the railway track, but you know it, it doesn't do any good to separate those two things. They were designed to go together. and um it's it's you know the the truth is that Bitcoin and blockchain, are so tightly joined together that you can't really tease them apart. You have to go back to the drawing board, which is exactly what people did at R3 when they created the quarter algorithm. They went back to the drawing board. Um, Hyperledger fabric is the same sort of exercise. So it take, takes some really serious engineering and, and some real brain power to to make that jump to the sort of third generation
0: technologies. You also said in, now, our, in our blockchain interview, you mentioned that we should look out for for blockchain version four. Yeah. And that that would really be the real innovation. And until then, you know, there's a lot of trial and error and failing forward. So is that what you see happening now with these new distributed ledgers?
1: You know, that was a that was, um, speculative talk um, on my part, that imagining version four. And I don't pretend to be authoritative about this. these generations. I, I do think it's interesting that a couple of things have happened in the last 12 months that look like, like Generation Four, and it's got more to do with governance and technology. So, there's a couple of, um, of really powerful um, new projects that have merged governance and technology. One of them is the Sovereign Network, mm-hmm. um was created initially by a company called Evernim uh, in the US that has been rethinking identity and self sovereign identity very carefully. Um, and taking great care to solve a particular problem. And um, I think it's fair to say that Evanim and Sovereign are less concerned with identity now, even even though they use the term self-sovereign identity, they're really much more concerned with um, the component attributes that make up somebody's identification. And the problem that's out there, um, you know, the engineering problem with digital identity is really how do you have confidence in the attributes um, you know, think about KYC, you know your customer in banking. You, you normally have to um, prove a number of things about yourself to open a new bank account anywhere in the world. You need to prove your your legal name. You need to prove that you live somewhere solid. Um, you need to prove your um, residency or your date of birth or, you know, your country of origin.
0: Right. You have to hold up your passport different- next to the camera and your face and <laughs> exactly. all those things.
1: So all of those different factoids, um, are only as good as the issuer, So, you know, you need a quote-unquote official passport and you need a quote-unquote official birth certificate um, and a proof of residence. So there is an idea that some distributed ledger technologies can help at least record the fact of an attribute and perhaps record interesting metadata about an attribute. So who vouches for an attribute? Mm-hmm. Um, when was it vouched for? Um, how do you revoke an attribute? And how do you keep a, a really accurate, timestamp record of the, you know, let's say the life cycle of attributes. So a lot of interesting work is being done by Evernim and um, another company called Digital Bazaar. Some of the IP um, of Evernim has gone into a new foundation called the Sovereign Foundation. And in turn, a lot of the code has been donated to a new Hyperledger program called Hyperledger Indie. So it's an interesting ecosystem and um I, I, I don't know who the winner is going to be in all of this and, and I doubt there will be a winner. I think there will be a, a a continuing contest of ideas around yeah. how do you manage attributes and you know what is the role of a distributed ledger for recording the life cycle of an attribute.
0: Mm-hmm. So But isn't what, what you just mentioned, isn't isn't that exactly combining off-chain, you know, meaning this person really has a valid passport and notary x you know, um prove that on on this and this date and therefore it is valid and then it gets written into a blockchain. I mean, isn't that exactly mixing the off-chain and on-chain world?
1: That you make a really good point. Um these new algorithms, um the plenum algorithm of of sovereign and um the work that Menosporni's done with Digital bazaar—they're very conscious of the blend of off-chain and on-chain um, processes. So let's just remind ourselves about how important the off-chain thing is. When when you look at Bitcoin, um, nothing really happens off-chain because it doesn't matter who belongs to which private yeah, key. Right. If Alice loses her key, then so be it. the The only action is on chain. It's a purely digital world, and. Um, it's quite different everywhere else in, in in identity, in healthcare, in physical assets. You know, if you're talking about land titles on the blockchain, what really matters is the, is, the, is the link between the analog and the digital. So what is happening off-chain that allows a token or a digital representation on-chain to stand for anything physical? So if I've got a code on a blockchain that stands for a piece of land or if I've got a code on a blockchain that stands for a diamond – um. How did that code get into the blockchain in the first place? It has to happen through an off-chain process. You need to have a trusted, mm-hmm. usually a third party sitting off-chain um, with a key, um, putting up their hand saying, here's a block of land, and I'm putting it on the blockchain. Yes. There is no such process in the original Bitcoin blockchain. There, you don't need any trust. Um, so the really weird thing is that if you're going to use the, the public Bitcoin blockchain for that type of use case... You're, um, you, you're really creating an enormous um, overhead. You've got this proof-of-work algorithm that only exists because um, everything's purely digital. If you hmm. have a, an off-chain agent who's saying, um, I say that this is Steve Wilson's passport and I'm vouching for Steve Wilson's um, passport number, um, that person is the single point of failure in the system. There's absolutely no point of then, you know, farming out outsourcing consensus to 10,000 computers on a public blockchain to crank away computing something about, you know, Steve Wilson and his passport when there's a single point of failure off-chain. Now, so you're absolutely right that the newer algorithms, um, you know, they don't have enormous networks of nodes that are cranking away establishing consensus because, really what matters is that you had an agent off-chain who was vouching for Steve Wilson's passport. So what's, mm-hmm. a, what's important is that we have some sort of robust, decentralized, um, distributed ledger that um, is secure and um, resilient uh, and, and highly available to store those attributes and the attribute metadata but the type of algorithm that's under the covers is really radically different from the old proof of work,
0: and also maybe then what's different is the promise of what a blockchain really is. Right. I feel,
1: yeah, um, you know, the the original blockchain was all about a, um, a an immutable, permanent ledger of every single currency movement, and you needed that because you mm-hmm. needed an eye in the sky. Um, but the identity applications are quite different and the promise that you're looking for is really is really quite different. So I think that the modern algorithms are, um, and maybe this is the generation four, we're hearing less about trust. We're hearing a lot less about immutability. Um, these mm-hmm. things have certainly got to be decentralized and highly available. Um, and those are good properties, but, you know, the
0: promises are different. Now, we mentioned- What, what, are, the new, what are the new promises?
1: Well, the, a lot of this gets wrapped up in the new governance. So I'm seeing these fourth generation, you know, arguably fourth generation. Maybe it's too early to make that call. But um, the sovereign network is made up of a number of stewards, so-called, so-called sovereign stewards that have a role in the the good housekeeping and the management processes that are occurring off-chain, as well as the software that keeps the chain itself together. So mm-hmm. the sovereign steward network and... Um, the, the much newer algorithm, again, the Hashgraph algorithm that is now been commercialised by a company called Hedera, um, these things have also got networks of, um, of governance agents and governance participants that are looking after the housekeeping of the network and, um, you know, keeping keeping the network honest, if you like. And instead of having tens of thousands of, um, of volunteer miners that are really in it for the money in the Bitcoin network, these newer... Um, Networks, the the newer distributed ledger networks, are um, much more tightly governed by organisations that are perhaps um, going through a different economic model too. So Mm -hmm. it's it's early days, but as I understand, Hedera, the stewards and the um, the the gatekeepers, let's call them in Hedera, are being uh, remunerated for the services that they provide. So instead of having a random mining bounty, the the stewards and the gatekeepers of the new uh, networks are being being paid for the work that they do. And that should, you know, the theory is that that should produce a much better behaved, less chaotic um, set of fluctuations and performance
0: metrics as well. Hmm, Interesting. But what these blockchains you're describing, they're permissioned blockchains. Absolutely. Yes. And also then you have a network of you know, private agents that are for-profit companies maybe that basically maintain the function of functioning of these blockchains, correct? That's the way it's emerging, that's right. Interesting. When you look at what has happened there, have you maybe revised some of your views, you know, that you had originally on innovation, if you want to call it that, in the field being somewhat misguided? Have you updated maybe some of your, your views on this recently?
1: I think at the... At the upper end of the scale, there's a lot of really good work being done by some very smart people who know exactly what's going on, and they're still continuing to engineer governance systems and algorithms that are really interesting for for much broader application than just cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. At the same time, there's an enormous number of entrepreneurs that are still. Absolutely using the public blockchains, um, Bitcoin and Ethereum, for a whole range of use cases. And I continue to to say that the vast majority of those use cases are misguided. Mm -hmm. Um, You just just don't put on a public immutable ledger um, the sorts of stuff um, that normally belongs in a database. Yeah, Um, right. Health records and identity and um, physical asset ledgers um, just don't belong on that type of data structure. Mm -hmm. So... Look, um, I um, absolutely salute the really good work that's being done by R3, Hyperledger, Microsoft, IBM, Hedera Hashgraph, Digital Bazaar, Ebenim, um, brilliant people um, doing good work and most of them are still very modest about where this is heading. Um, you, you talk to the big professional services firms and they will say that roughly 80% of blockchain pilots or distributed ledger pilots are going to um, end without, you know, they're going to end and, and go on and do something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm trying not to say fail, but, <laughs> you know, we, by some measure you could call them a failure. If, if you think that blockchain's a good idea and you do a pilot and it turns out to not be a good idea, then I don't know what you call that. Um, maybe people are failing fast and, and there's nothing yeah. wrong with failure. There's nothing wrong with experimentation if you learn from it. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the figure I keep hearing is 80%. Um, if you look at, if you look across um, all of the, the proofs of concept and so on, 80% of them will turn out to um, change their mind about the distributed ledger. And that's
0: because… It's interesting, isn't it?
1: it yeah. It's because this is a special purpose technology. Yeah, it's very
0: interesting. Hmm. Cool. So basically, they'd end up using just uh, database and encryption, and that will do just fine. Instead of using a blockchain, you mean?
1: Yeah, exactly. If um, you know, if if you're in a use case which is highly administered and there's a lot of off-chain um, processes, a lot of off-chain reliance occurring, mm-hmm. then the sort of promise that you get out of a distributed ledger, or out of a blockchain, it's just not adding a lot of value. Yeah. You know, let let me talk about health records for a minute. Mm-hmm. And, sure. and consensus. So I saw a demonstration of a health record on a blockchain, and um, you know, the people demonstrating it were not fools and they were not you know to be fair keeping health information on a blockchain they were they were keeping hashes of of a health record on a blockchain and the purpose of the blockchain in their case i think was to store some metadata about the life cycle of a patient's consent so the patient sits down with the doctor um and they do some tests the doctor says would you like your record to be kept in this new technology And um, blah, 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 Um, a hash of the encounter is produced and digitally signed and and popped on the blockchain. Now, um, I was interrogating the engineers and saying, you know, why are you using a public blockchain? What's the consensus mechanism Mm -hmm. or what's the consensus objective? And they said, well, we've got the consensus between the doctor and the patient that this particular thing happened at a particular time, and we're putting that on the blockchain. And I said, "So this is a public blockchain with a with a number of you know nodes all reaching consensus about that event." They said, "Absolutely, you know we're using Ethereum, and um, the Ethereum network is reaching consensus about the event." And I said, "But hang on, the event occurred between the doctor and the patient. There's no mystery about the keys. You know these people have got keys. It's proper key management. The doctor and the patient are in the same room." They know each other, they're using definite keys. Why do you need consensus about that? Hmm. And you know what? The engineer said, well, because the patient has given consent to have their record on the blockchain. Oh, okay. And it. I had this horrible, sinking feeling that these people were, were confusing the words consent and consensus. Right. And I'm not kidding. There was that level of confusion about what the promise of the blockchain is versus. The promise that's that occurs between a doctor and the patient, and in that particular scenario, I can't imagine for for the life of me, I can't imagine what value is added by having a thousand computers all voting and reaching consensus about the fact that the doctor said yes to the patient. Like, what is going on there that that requires a blockchain? What what require what is required is that the doctor and the patient probably both have a smart card, or they've both got keys and secure elements in their mobile phones. And, you know, they look at each other across the desk and they agree that this event is going to go into a database and that event is digitally signed and timestamped, um, you know, at the point of the medical service. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a, it's not the sort of scenario that to me speaks of consensus and distribution and a whole bunch of computers trying to work out what's going
0: on. Right, yeah. There's no
1: uncertainty about it.
0: Mm-hmm. Was, that a, was that a startup? Uh,
1: it was not a startup. And, and I'm not going to say who it was okay. <laughs> but um, I think it's going to turn out to be one of the 80 um, mm. mm-hmm. percent that that it's a proof of concept that turns out to be um, maybe it delivers some learning and I you know these are these are smart people doing the work I just hope that they Come through it after a few months of work and 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 realize what's going on. Yeah,
0: well, you know, I think, um, and we spoke about this in the past as well. There's there's this whole blockchain phenomenon happening, and I think it captures yeah. a lot of people's imagination. I mean, definitely started a few years ago, where it just kind of. I mean, even though you said some people don't know about it, and I think most people don't know much about blockchains or that they even exist, but there is a community there that's where so much energy is concentrating on doing something with blockchains that changes the world. Um, Why do you think that this technology, you know, still now 10 years after this uh, white paper is capturing people's imagination in the way it does?
1: Look, I think the white paper um, was very sexy. Um, It came at a really crucial point in the tech cycle as well as the economic cycle, with the with the financial crisis um, coming up to ten years, it'll be ten years in November, I think, since the Bitcoin white paper was published. Um, it's very romantic. It's very sexy. You know, Nakamoto is a is a tragic figure. Still, nobody knows who it was. Um, uh, there's a there's a good idea that Nakamoto might actually be dead, and um, so you know, there's some tragedy and some romance attached to that. Mm-hmm. But um, and there's also uh, there's a whole wave of people, and you know you may have heard this yourself. I've heard it multiple times. I've heard entrepreneurs, fifty-year-old entrepreneurs, say to me, "I missed the internet wave. I'm not missing blockchain." Now that's a that's still a crapshoot. It's um it's it's a gambling kind of um philosophy that says that that I'm going to um. I'm, I'm going to catch this wave now. I'm not going to miss out
0: again. In- interesting point. I mean, what I've heard just a few days ago is internet entrepreneurs who were quite successful saying dot-com was interesting, but blockchain technology is even more interesting and 10 times faster.
1: Yeah, look, certainly faster. <laughs> um, we've, we've seen um, an, an amazing amount of activity occur in, in a matter of months, whereas, mm-hmm. you know, the internet took Took a couple of decades to build. That that does not speak of success, though. I mean, that is not the, the, the rapid dumping of billions of dollars of so-called investment into this is is not a predictor of success. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people people had FOMO. You yeah. You know, we we think that our 13-year-old kids have FOMO because they you know they have to go to bed and they're not allowed to keep cruising you know Facebook. But there's nothing like the FOMO of a of a you know a 50-year-old entrepreneur or um, a whole bunch of, you know, standard bricks and mortar companies yeah. who have been told that the future of retail or the future of supply chain is the blockchain and you better get onto it. Wow. Hmm. Um, the, you know, the FOMO is astonishing and um, it's still quite difficult to, to be exactly clear about why that's the case. You know, I've been in technology for for 30 years mm-hmm. and I've been told repeatedly that I need to speak business. I need to not talk about encryption and key lengths and technology, but we need to talk about business outcomes, and that's absolutely correct. Um, but I look at the blockchain phenomenon, and, uh, you know, I'm astonished that people can um, c- can get so far and spend so much money based on something that's really not properly explained. Hmm. <laughs> I've never seen anything like it. <laughs> um, you know, there is a real lack of critical thinking, and there is this hmm. desperation to, to believe. Now, I think the belief is really important. Um uh, the blockchain solved this unsolvable problem. It's very much like the Wright brothers' flyer. You 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 see something with your own eyes that, that you've been told is impossible. What happened for ten years after the Wright brothers' flyer was that everyone and their dog uh, ran off to their to their garages and their sheds and they started building their own airplanes. They copied the Wright brothers' flyer, and if you have a look at the first generation of airplanes through through. Um, nineteen o four to about nineteen fourteen. Um, again, eighty percent of them were just farcical. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> most of them, um, most of them crashed. So, the parallel is really strong. It takes about ten years to really do some proper engineering, and we're seeing that. You know, we've we've traversed that that the examples of, of third generation ledgers that are doing quite well. It's, it's still early days.
0: But, you know, it's, it's also interesting because, I mean, that whole theme of flying, I mean, that was the, the theme of my blockchain film. And um, I think it's, it's a good analogy that you made and other people I spoke to as well, where they said it is really like airplanes that, you know, the Wright brothers came up with something that nobody thought is possible. Um, In the Bitcoin white paper, Satoshi Nakamoto came up with a solution that many people thought was impossible. And then they wanted to get involved in it. It created an energy where they thought, I also want to be part of this very special thing that is happening here. But of course, nobody knew with the airplane that it would end up where we are today right where it's totally normal to board a plane and fly across the globe and you know there's hundreds of thousands of people in the air at any second during the day. Yeah. But still right I mean the dream of flying for for people that's obviously impossible to conceive for maybe thousands of years and all of a sudden it seemed possible and I feel here there's something very similar and so I believe you're right it is it can be fear of missing out. But still, there is something deeper there. It's it's not just a business interest, I feel. It's yeah. there's something else too.
1: Yeah, the deep thing is probably the freedom of decentralization. And, you know, amongst computer scientists and amongst the, the early internet libertarians, there was a realization that people could, for the first time, exercise a great deal of freedom in cyberspace. Um, they, they were free to adopt their own personas they were free to connect in ways that were that were frictionless and not mediated by by parents or teachers or now banks you know it it appears with bitcoin you can um, you can decouple mm-hmm. yourself from yeah. the banks and the and the financial system and there's a whole lot of freedom in that now the sad thing is that the freedom of of bitcoin is very qualified The freedom of Bitcoin is that you can move Bitcoin between Alice and Bob without an intermediary. And it appears that Bitcoin created decentralization. So, you know, decentralization has been Mm -hmm. a holy cow of computer science for a long time or um, distributed networks, truly distributed networks. But I think that we need to remember that Nakamoto started with decentralization
0: as a design point. He didn't invent it. It was there already.
1: It was a it was a starting assumption that we wanted to find a way of doing cryptocurrency without an intermediary. Now, if if you gave Nakamoto the design problem of saying let's do digital cash with an intermediary, um they would have come up with something quite radically different. Let, let's assume that Nakamoto was a genius architect. Um, they would have come up with something that was that was quite different and a god, a hell of a lot mm. more efficient than um than proof of work. So you need to remember that um, the blockchain network, the, the Bitcoin and the public blockchain networks don't just deliver decentralisation in any general sense. Um, they, they only decentralise the supervision of cryptocurrency. comes back to this off-chain thing. If, if you think that you can now do decentralised electronic health records, I'm not even sure why you'd want to do that. Um, you know, you're not going to decentralise a doctor um, I don't want to crowdsource medicine. I, you know, I want to go to a board-certified surgeon when, when I'm going to have an operation. But if, if in some sense you think that you're going to decentralize um, medicine um, or disintermediate the, the power structure of medicine, uh, the, the Bitcoin network is not going to do it for you because it, it does not cope with that analog-to-digital off-chain mm-hmm. presence.
0: Yes, I get the point with decentralization. That is probably one of the things that inspires people.
1: People are yearning for that freedom and, you know, the freedom of, of flight <laughs> and um, and the freedom of, of decentralized computing. It, it, decentralized computing on these blockchains is really is really a qualified property.
0: And um, it's just not quite what people um, imagine and hope it to be. It's interesting, though, decentralization as a main motivator and then people at banks try to work on this topic, on the banks, money, and time,
1: Nakamoto must must roll in their grave at the idea that um, you know, stock exchanges and big settlement banks are now running blockchain type of algorithms. Um, but you know, that's the story of the evolution of tech. Um, R three um, noted that the idea of being able to um, share some banking information amongst competing banks, um, not a lot of information, but to compare and share some information. And, um, you know, Richard Brown from R3 put it really nicely a couple of years ago said, you know, you've got five banks sharing some data and they all know that you know, that I know, mm-hmm. that we all see the same thing. And that there's that radical transparency in some of these distributed ledgers that means that a lot of information when it gets onto the ledger is already like pre Um, You don't need to reconcile this stuff because the process of getting data will be. The process of creating the ledger entries means that everybody knows that the data is agreed to. And that's a a pretty powerful thing. That means that you can settle things a lot faster. You don't need a T plus one day. You don't need a whole day of reconciling databases Mm -hmm. because the the algorithm itself um, pre-reconciles the data before it gets on the ledger. So um, that's kind of a very qualified form of decentralization Uh, and again it's it's quite different from what the libertarian Nakamoto or the anarchist Nakamoto thought that the algorithm was gonna was gonna deliver. So, you know, I Mm -hmm. I really hope that Nakamoto, wherever they are, has a sense of humor
0: and um (laughs) 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 baby is turned into. Yeah, (laughs) it's it's a good point. I mean speaking of sense of humor, do you do you often get attacked? from people in the crypto and blockchain space when you criticised your projects or approaches?
1: Oh, look, yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, I, I, I can be a bit provocative and I think I can be a bit strident, um, but some of the people out there deserve stridency. You know, there are, there are some people out there that say the most preposterous things about this technology is going to change democracy, um, this technology is going to change voting, you know, voting on a blockchain is a is a bad idea, and it's not just me. Um, you know, nobody – no lesser figure than Ron Rivest says that blockchain is a bad idea for voting. Um, and in my words, you know, voting, de- democratic voting, one person, one vote. You need to have one person, one key, one vote. And there's no blockchain out there that is even concerned with the key management problem of one person, one key, one vote. It's not what blockchain mm-hmm. does. And so I am strident about that. And and you know, some people take umbrage at, at at um at their sacred blockchain being being um dismissed. And I you know, some things you can dismiss out of hand. Um but you know, you it's like it's like any technology wave, there are some really good people out there that that um that are working hard and, and, and I've got enormous respect for an enormous number of people that are working on this. And um and, uh, you know, we, I think that we all get along quite fine. But, you know, I'm, I'm just one voice. And, um, and if that voice upsets some people, then um, that, that's, you know, so be it. That's, that's <laughs> certainly what's been happening in the last <laughs> couple of years.
0: Well, it's also part of an evolution, I think, right? I mean, not everybody can agree. And if we don't all agree, then hopefully something good comes out of it. Um, how did you, I'm wondering, how did you originally get into science, into science, wow! I was
1: a, I was a geeky kid. I was um, playing with chemistry sets and um, and and playing with maths and playing with sort of Pascal's triangle and stuff when I was a kid. Um, and um, you know, I've I've always loved that. Um, I've always loved practical computing too. I, I did a lot of you know learned a lot of languages at, in college. Um, but the stuff mm. I really liked was embedded systems and um, and programming. Um, I cut my teeth writing code for the for the world's first implantable defibrillators in the 1990s. oh cool um, and that that was fantastic you know microcontroller eight bits um, um, measuring cardiac signals and generating pacing pulses and generating defibrillator waveforms and um, you know writing the operating system software for these for these implantable devices and playing with breadboards, and so the software actually made things happen, um, and and that was that was fantastic. My journey in identity and my journey in in um, in cyberspace and cybersecurity is really all has really been about the practical application of cryptography. Um, mm-hmm. I I fell into digital identity quite accidentally in 1995. Um, I had been working at that defibrillator company I spoke mm-hmm. about, working in the US, and uh, had to. It was a forced move. Um, the company was in trouble. Um, my family wanted to return to Australia, and I found a job working for a little startup company doing PKI, public key infrastructure. And I remembered a little bit of cryptography from my undergraduate maths, but um, became fascinated by by public key, and what a lot of people now call zero-knowledge proof. So um, mm-hmm. public key is a way of um, doing things with your private key that is easily verifiable by anybody out in the public. Now, the original pic ideas were that we it would be pretty cool to have a digital certificate that encapsulated everything that you needed to know about somebody, and wouldn't be great if you had a, a certificate that proved that you weren't a dog and that proved that you had a particular bank account, and you lived in Australia, and everything you possibly needed to know was in that certificate. And I worked mm-hmm. for a, a couple of companies that that had that vision, and it dawned on me very early on that it was more about attributes. It was more about um, what than who. Like it's not who you are that matters in business; it's it's what you are that matters. You know, what is your credit card number? In fact, I've got five different credit card numbers, right? So. Um How do you know that any of them are true? You know I've got five different credit personas. Um, mm-hmm. But how do you know that it's really a patient? How do you know it's really a doctor? Um, you know some people are patients and doctors at the same time, but when a doctor goes to hospital and becomes a patient, you you do not want to know that it's a doctor. In fact, hospitals go to a lot of um, pain and a lot of um, process to treat a doctor as a patient and not to treat a doctor as a doctor. So, you know, as soon as you get into digital identity management, it becomes painfully um, obvious early on that you need to set aside the personal and you need to zone in on, paradoxically, these sort of impersonal attributes. And I found really early on that public key certificates were actually much better at, at proving the what than the who. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I've been on this sort of 20-year-plus journey of trying to um, leverage public key certificates and leverage these zero knowledge proofs to um to establish claims and attributes I, I guess because I've been doing that for some time that when when blockchain identity came along three or four years ago it just you know just didn't really make sense um, mm. it, it takes it, it takes a lot of discipline to, to separate the personal from the attributes and um not many of those identity startups, blockchain identity startups, really had that discipline. They were sort of wading in boots and all, trying to solve the trust problem. It's a it's a strange category error that people make with blockchain. Um, you know, the the Economist magazine called it the trust machine with that mm-hmm. cover yep. article three or four years ago, and you still see people right. very carelessly, very loosely, equating blockchain with trust. And hmm. this is not a matter of semantics or philosophy. You've got to remember that the blockchain was for moving money between people who didn't trust each other, didn't want to trust each other, didn't even question whether or not they were trustworthy. They just want to move those those Bitcoin. And, and blockchain is insanely good at doing that. It doesn't deliver trust. It, it delivers an amazing outcome with zero trust. And mm. the idea that that world, that that bit of algorithm would, would deliver trust as well um, is a really serious category error. Um, I, I like the old Italian. I think it's Italian. Um, there's a, there's an old proverb that says, you know, it's nice to trust, but it's better not to. And it, it's kind of Machiavellian, and it goes back to a Renaissance thinking um, about how do you do business with people, and um, mm-hmm. how do you how do you decouple trust? Like, how do you make things happen in a civilized society without having to, to question each other all the time? And um, I think that you know, the less it about the trust, the better. Um, I've got to a point in my career where I really, really deliberately want to to stop using the word identity. And I think that we've really got to do the same thing with trust. Um, And uh, a lot of sort of a huge amount of society is around um, dealing with people without trusting them. And uh, I think Mm -hmm. that's really important. And I, I think, again, maybe there's the Maybe that thinking is a bit clinical, and it and it depersonalizes things, and it leaves people with a bit of a gap, um, and and that they are yearning for something that sort of repersonalizes the internet and, and puts a bit of magic back into it, like breathes a bit of fire back into the internet, and mm-hmm. I, I think that you can explain a lot of the blockchain excitement around that that yearning to, to breathe some fire back into the back into the network, and. Uh, yeah, you know, blockchain certainly does at the metaphorical
0: level. Let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsors. Descartes Finance takes tradition into the future, harnessing a combination of cutting edge technology and personal advice in the service of your personal interests. Descartes cuts through the financial noise and focuses exclusively on scientific and evidence-based investing to give investors a better understanding of how to view the financial markets and provide them with their respective investment strategies. To learn more, please visit www.decart-finance.com. That's d-e-s-c-a-r-t-e-s-finance.com. That
1: yearning to, to breathe some fire back into the back into the network, and uh, you know, blockchain certainly does that at a metaphorical level.
0: Yeah, I guess. I mean, that's definitely something I heard from people where they said um, blockchain technology, cryptocurrencies are a new kind of internet. And they enable the original vision of the internet that people had and, you know, can somehow swing back this network that we have now that's full of advertising and data problems into something that's controlled by the people. I think that's really a fascination.
1: And I'm, I am 110% behind that. It, it reminds me of the self-sovereign identity movement, which mm-hmm. is a real calling for a, a repowering of the internet or a rebalancing. Um, the, there's been the vendor relationship management movement, VRM, which is the inverse of customer relationship management. And um, it's powered by a real resentment of the, the digital divide, the power that digital companies have, have got the way that um, established uh, businesses have leveraged networking um, to just maintain the their, their disadvantage that they have over us. And um, look, I get that. A lot of what happens in social media and digital companies and the advertising fueled internet, it just sucks. And we've got to do something about it. But um, you, you don't actually have a lot of success rebalancing the internet by reclaiming identity. Um, because mm-hmm. it's not identity that matters. It, identity is like the lightning rod, and it, it certainly appears as though Google and Facebook and Twitter they identify us and then they take advantage of us. But that identity is just a it's just a handle. It's just a convenience. If if, mm-hmm. if it was possible to have self sovereign identity, and if it was possible for Steve Wilson to say to the world, I am Steve, and um I will tell you who I am, and I will define my identity. If that was possible you would still have Facebook with its cookies and its, and its multiple signals still working out um, where I shop and what I like to drink and who I hang with, and they would still mm-hmm. be profiling me and, and making a ridiculous amount of money from big data. So mm. I think you've got to define the problem and frame the problem. Um, the, the problem with the internet and with the with the surveillance capitalism is that people are making unreasonable amounts of money um, behind our backs, by surveilling and monitoring what we do, and um, you know, I've got I've got one word to say to you: GDPR. Um, the, the 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 European style of privacy um, power that that is sweeping the world now um, is just the beginning, I think, of a new order um, in the digital mm-hmm. economy. I think that yes. I think that we are we are seeing, and you know, GDPR is not all that new. It's it's really a, a hardening and a, and a and a refinement of privacy laws that have been around in Europe for forty years. And you know, we've had them in Australia for thirty years, and over a hundred countries around the world for at least ten years have had privacy laws. Um, mm-hmm. GDPR is getting a lot of attention because of the fines, but really, it's a it's 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 the logical progression of data protection laws that try and put limits on how people exploit data in exactly the same Mm -hmm. way that we had Mm -hmm. new laws in the 1800s um, that controlled the way that um, crude oil was dug up and refined and shipped around the place. Mm -hmm. So when we have this massive new revolution around data, um, at the moment it's still Wild West. Like if data is this superb raw material that will fuel the new economy, then you just can't have social media companies um, doing what they like with this stuff and making you know billion dollar fortunes. You need to have some sort of um, rebalance. So, I, I what I'm saying is that the, the 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 yearning for for a fairer internet is very reasonable and is long overdue. And it's coming anyway, through um through GDPR and it's coming through the you know Americans will have their homegrown approach to privacy. They'll do it their own way. Um, it. It will just mean that the people in the street, um, the individual, is going to get a better deal out of this new economy. And um, you know, I think that we're going to achieve this without self-sovereign identity and and without certainly without blockchain. You know, I think that blockchain will be an important niche in this. It will be a it'll be another sort of database technology that that's going to be very important in some transactions. But I just I still remain unconvinced that blockchain is the type of thing that can you know that can revolutionize the internet. Good point. Yeah, no, I think <laughs> So, you know, it's funny that we're landing on the same place and, and I've got very good friends that are, that are trying to um that are trying to achieve these outcomes, but I think that the you know, I think that we're going to get there um in a in a in a more complicated way and in, in, in I think we're going to get there through governance and regulation more than we are through any particular technology.
0: Right. See, for me this is really about exploring um New areas where people push technology to the forefront and and hope they can really make an impact with it. And they may achieve that or they may not. and some may fa- fall you know flat on their faces and and lose their investors' money, but others may push the envelope a little
1: bit. I should say that I understand the cryptocurrency philosophy. i I understand the need that some people feel for anonymous or unregulated, Peer to peer money, and um, it's just not my world. Um, you know, I'm sympathetic to it, and I think I understand it, and and I hope it happens. Um, my my first exposure to the Bitcoin white paper probably came in about twenty twelve thereabouts. Um, it crossed my desk, you know, bitcoin.pdf, and um, and I read it and found it absolutely amazing. And what Nakamoto did was very surprising to me because, you know, I'd I'd worked around DigiCash in 1995, so I I had an idea how hard the problem was and and I thought, wow, this is fantastic. Um, But then I set it aside because cryptocurrency to me is just not my world. Um, I don't don't need it myself. Um, I don't think it's going to change the world. I think that we're going to have fiat currency as the dominant thing forever. But when I took real um, attention to Bitcoin and and blockchain was when people started doing blockchain identity. And um, I think I've told this story before. I was at the um, 2015 Cloud Identity Summit in a a crowd of about 700 people, the creme de la creme of identity professionals. And um, the keynote speaker mentioned blockchain as something to keep an eye on and said, by the way... Who's doing anything with blockchain? And and I counted about six hands went up in an auditorium with seven hundred people, and that's when I thought, wow, this is interesting. I, I knew that there were thirty different blockchain identity startups, but the identity community itself was not embracing blockchain. So, mm-hmm. you know, as an analyst, I thought that that um, indicated that there was a really interesting um, sort of disruption occurring, and that I should get onto that. So, um, now. Now you've had that bifurcation, now where, where cryptocurrency is a big thing, and there's you know, there's hundreds of the things around there, and there is this idea that there will be a you know, a community money forever. Um, it's got to be said though that you know, the vast majority of cryptocurrency that's out there now is speculative and it's not really for mm-hmm. currency, absolutely, it's to make yeah. money. And it's kind of again, I think that Nakamoto would probably roll in their grave. I, I just I think that it's it's abhorrent to the original intention of having a peer-to-peer community-based non-fiat currency. Meanwhile, of course, to really rub salt into the wounds, the properties of having um, very um, um, very low friction cryptocurrency um, and a hybrid fiat cryptocurrency kind of model, which people are exploring in places like Singapore, um, you know, that that again is um is going to create some allergic reactions amongst the libertarians. But, you know, let's be clear about what problems we're trying to solve. Um if, if there mm-hmm. is going to be pure digital money instead of this silly paper stuff that we've got, and if it's going to be not controlled by credit card companies, then um it's pretty predictable that, that the fiat currencies and the and the Central Reserve banks are going to see what this technology can do for them. And um and why not? You know, I don't I don't think the cryptocurrency people can object to that. They've they've sort of let the genie out of the bottle and the possibility of doing things that are are, um, less administered is now out there in the public domain. So, you know, I don't think you can really um, be surprised by the fact that central banks are trying to get Mm -hmm. into that.
0: Absolutely. I think uh, that's what many of the proponents wanted for the longest time, that the banks are getting into it and take it seriously. Only now what happened is that they came up with their own version yeah. of it. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> Steve, what's your view on smart contracts?
1: Oh, wow. Um, you know, I, I think we're back to the beginning again. If, if the original blockchain just didn't do what people thought it did, um, then mm-hmm. I've, I've got the same view about smart contracts, I'm afraid. It seems to me, now I'm not a lawyer, but I'm, I've been around lawyers long enough to know that the, the essence of a contract is that um, two people are going to get together and they want something to happen. Um, they're going to agree on the terms of a contract. Um, there's going to be an offer. There's going to be consideration and there's going to be some sort of settlement where they can agree that that something happened and um, they walk away happy. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of a smart contract appears to be that m- most of the important things there can be codified or mechanised and put onto a blockchain Um, Now, depending on who you talk to, sort of magic happens. Um, Some of the claims for smart contracts are really, you know, let's call it, it's frankly preposterous. Um, Hmm. The idea that you codify everything and stick that on a ledger and then the idea that code is law. Um, Some people say that these smart contracts will not just make um, legal processes more efficient. So let's come back to that. But some people say that it will eliminate legal processes. It will eliminate court Mm. cases. Um, You will not go to court anymore because the blockchain is perfect and the smart contract will be unassailable. And, And there's so many problems with that. I mean, to begin with, smart contracts are code and code is buggy. And if people agree to use a piece of code but the code is buggy and therefore it doesn't do what you agreed it would do, then, whatever that thing is, it becomes kind of invalid. Um, yeah. It's the most, imp- so, you know, the code is law mantra, I think, is just, you know, self evidently ridiculous. Um, who
0: said but, that? Who, whose words were those?
1: It, the code is law. I mean, it's a hashtag on Twitter. There's a lot of people take it seriously. And I have argued with people at big consulting firms who, who've, who've adopted this idea that, that the smart contract will stand no matter what and um, you won't go to court. Well, I'm afraid that you do go to court in in matters of contract law because if the contract isn't what you thought it was, something's happened, you know, in blockchain parlance, something has happened off-chain. Yeah. The most amazing, you know, well, the most interesting thing to me about a smart contract is how do the people agree to use the smart contract technology in the first place? So you and I might say um, we're going to execute some sort of – Um, you know, property transaction using a smart contract, and you and I are going to agree that um, something happening in Ethereum will represent my car, and um, you'll you'll take delivery of the car, and when you're happy with it, you'll get paid in Ether. The really interesting thing to me was that you and I agreed to use the smart contract somewhere in meat space, you know, off-chain. We thought that this would be a cool thing to do. Now, we did that based on an understanding of what the smart contract is, and that understanding can't be in the smart contract. It has to be off-chain, or it has to be outside the contract. And so there's a, there's a, you know, there's a confusion of levels. Um, I, I don't think a smart contract is going to be anything other than a, than a clever script, like a piece of embedded software that makes things happen. Now, if it's done in a decentralized, distributed computing environment, and Maybe there's an agreement between multiple parties where elements of that agreement occur around the world, like in shipping or something like that. Then that becomes really right. interesting that if you need different things to happen in a coordinated way at different points in the planet and everybody agrees that that's going to somehow be in synchrony, then I think this smart contract um, technology might be useful. But we've, we've got to demystify it. We've got to get away from this coders' law mantra, and we've got to realise that The really interesting thing about any contract occurs off chain and that i think that that's in itself that realization will help people temper their expectations of um of of, you know the magic of a smart contract um Mm -hmm.
0: yeah right i mean um often i read and hear also from speaking with people that they say well you know there's no need for smart contracts just for normal agreements that you and i would do if if we just you know if we buy or sell a car then that's not necessary. But what if there are autonomous vehicles, you know, negotiating rights of way or things like these? Then that may make more sense. The shipping example you said, I mean, they are also see it.
1: Yes, yeah, certainly. And the some of the best, um, financially strongest use cases for distributed ledgers are coming out of shipping, where um, if, if you can help construct a shipping manifest in a way that the information in the manifest is sort of pre-audited um, or pre-reconciled and mm-hmm. um, the state of the cargo is is known and agreed to and then it turns out that something is missing in the cargo you know the famously the avocados never made it onto the ship because there was a you know a flat tire in the lorry on the way to the port um and somebody's disappointed they 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 um, they look at What's arrived at the destination? They're missing something. They're disappointed. They get into a dispute. Um, the most sort of prosaic business case that I've seen so far is that, and this comes from IBM, that a, a, a complicated shipping dispute could be resolved in five days instead of 60 days. And if if you can really streamline dispute resolution, because people will agree on the state of the data, and they'll be able to rewind or um mm-hmm. or um or unwind what's on the ship or unwind what's in a supply chain. If you can do that quicker, then, you know, time is money. And there's some very prosaic um, efficiency calculations that are done that says that, you know, there's billions of dollars of cost just simply in, 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 in the delay that occurs in these complicated transactions. So, and that's great. Um, whether or not, you know, the idea of a smart contract comes along and, and adds a lot of magic to it, I'm, I'm, I'm just not convinced. Um, the term hmm. smart contract has adopted sort of a life of its own. Um, and smart contracts are intrinsic to the Ethereum platform in, in ways that, that aren't actually terribly clear. Um, uh, if you take a bit of embedded software, and, you know, I explained before that I cut my teeth in defibrillator software, there's, you know, there's nothing smarter, I guess, than an algorithm that sits inside your chest for five years and waits for you to have a heart attack and directs a 600 volt shock to um to to save your life. Um, that's an autonomous, incredibly complicated piece of software. We wrote 40,000 lines of software with, with with three mm, bugs. Wow! In the entire system, um, and and you know that's that's kind of smart. But we didn't run around giving it any magical properties. It was just well designed real time software that looked mm. out for for signals and responded to them in a in a in an autonomous way. There's no magic there. Um, I think that a lot of the idea that smart contract is somehow more powerful than just a piece of automatic software that is responding to the environment and making things happen. Um, Maybe, you know, forgive my cynicism, but but as a real-time systems engineer from the past, um, I I don't see that the smart contract is doing anything that we haven't been doing for a long time already. Except, Mm -hmm. you know, I I do accept that um, having the same smart contract Running in in a number of different nodes around the world, in synchrony, and if people mm-hmm. agree um, it, that that they they agree that it's going to do something for their collective benefit, then I think that there's some goodness in that. But mm-hmm. again, let's let's just be quite qualified about what we expect this thing mm-hmm. to do. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you think um, it's maybe just a glorified script, a smart contract?
1: Yeah, I would put it that way. Um, I think it is a glorified script. Um,
0: it, it, what you said, you mentioned the shipping example before. Is that an application though, where you know smart contract would make sense, or do you think are there? Do you see other applications too?
1: <clears throat> I think that that's the classic supply chain and shipping, <clears throat> where you've got a lot of complicated inputs occurring to a shared ledger, and um, that ledger is important at a number of different points around the supply chain and around the world and you want to reach agreement really quickly about the state of that data, then yes. Um, I just don't know that calling it smart contract helps. Um, I really balk at the word contract because I think that, that you know all of those shipping companies and freight forwarders and import-export agents are all going to have to agree um, off-chain that this technology is going to suit their purposes and they're going to pay their money and they're going to install the code and they're going to press buttons and stuff will happen. And, you know, like you say, it's a script and the computer software will make things happen and the computer software might direct a payment. Um, You know, if if the ship gets unloaded and everybody's happy, then um, direct payment instructions all around the world. Well, you know, I don't even know why those payment instructions would be cryptocurrency. Um, I don't think it would necessarily be Ether. I think it would be standard bank transfers. So um, absolutely, there's some goodness there. And and having a new scripting language that makes sure that all of these distributed nodes are, um, are in synchrony and they're all behaving the same way, then that's great. Uh, and that is goodness. But I don't call it a contract because, you know, the actual contract um, is formed off chain.
0: Yeah, I see that point. Do you do you think that platform for that script or for that piece of code exists already, or is there still work to be done to create a good one?
1: Look, I think um, I think that some computer science is required, and I think the work that Buterin has done um, in the Ethereum platform probably has mm-hmm. helped. I, I, now I'm not a distributed computing expert, and I do know some experts that find all of this mildly irritating because there was there were ways in the 1980s of making sure that distributed computers were all doing the same thing. So, distributed computing as a field is not new. Um, I think that that eth- I think the Ethereum platform has created some new efficiencies and some new ways of um, you know making this accessible more quickly. Some of the things that bother me, though, about Ethereum is that I don't know why you necessarily had to come up with a new language to make this happen. Mm, so the, okay. the, the Solidity language is a little problematic. Um, it's brand new. Um, there are bugs in the language. There are certainly bugs in the smart contract. And um, it, it's a strange added level of complexity that if you're going to come up with a platform to do, um, let's say, distributed scripting, and decentralized scripting, then w- mm. why you'd go and throw a new language at that um, at the same time? You know, I've sometimes said that I think that that Buterin was trying to do two or three PhDs all at once. You know, he was trying yeah,
0: to... Yeah, I heard you say that, yes.
1: Yeah, you know, take the Bitcoin blockchain and do it better, and come up with smart contracts, and invent a new programming language. Um, w- all of this stuff is... Um, you know, forgive me for being a bit conservative, but I'm a security guy and um, you need to take baby steps and you need to be really careful, um, especially in cryptography. You know, it takes famously it takes 20 years for a new cryptography um, algorithm to be bedded in and accepted by the community. And um, you, you actually don't want things to happen much more quickly than that. You know, in security, yeah. you've got to be careful what you ask for in case you get it and the idea of frictionless cryptographic development and new languages and and new scripts that are themselves buggy you know some auditors have come back and said that they're finding much more than one bug per 100 lines of software when they look at smart contracts oh. um, you know you, you 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 um you make haste at your own peril in security and um
0: I. Uh, um. I mean, that's maybe one thing. Right when I asked before, what the crypto and blockchain space needs to to get to the next level, maybe it's um, slowing down a little bit.
1: Oh, definitely. You know, you got to be careful what you ask for in security and and all of this lack of friction um, and 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 haste. I think is is really perilous. Um. It, it, I think you can certainly lay a lot of blame for the, for the strife that we're in um, at things, um, you know, frankly, at, at, at the Agile movement and the MVP movement. You know, I, I know that in the right hands, Agile is a, is a good thing, and um, I know that we need more artful, real-world development methodologies. I know all that, but I also see time and time again the Agile movement and the MVP movement, Being used to cut corners, Um, you you can't you can't go around saying to people design security in um, at the same time as calling for minimum viable products. Um, It it just licenses people to cut corners, and by the time you release an MVP and start making money off of it, there's just no incentive left for people to go back in and do a lot of non-productive work hardening the security of these things. So.
0: Yeah, time that's time a real again, problem, isn't it?
1: I've blogged about this. It's not a popular view, but time and time again, you can you can clearly see that really serious bugs out there have occurred because people are writing code too quickly. Mm. Um, I had a you know when I was running um, pacemaker software at this American company in the 1990s, mm. yep. I had a team of 30 people designing software that you know it had to be pretty cool. It had to be pretty robust for pacemaker software. And one of the innovations that we had now. Methodology was that we actually asked people to to turn their computers off for one day a week, and to design with pencil and paper, and to get around whiteboards, and to explain each other's software in English um, using using pen and paper. And uh, it's a it's a discipline that I think is is lacking now. Um, people tend to think with their fingers and think of their keyboards, and um, we we're losing. The ability to think critically and we we're, we're just rushing um, yeah. and I, I think that uh, I think this haste is something that is not always helpful so sure in in all things in moderation but if we were to slow down a little bit and try and think more clearly about what we're doing and to you know remind ourselves what the blockchain was originally for um, I, I think that that would I think that that would help. Yes, mm-hmm. I do. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you think this haste and this, uh, I mean, some other people would call it speed, do you think that comes because there is so much money to be made in this space?
1: Well, without a doubt, the FOMO is about um, is about getting in quick. Um, and some of it's just sort of crazy. You know, the Dogecoin um, that, was, that was created by a young guy who just wanted to see that it, that it could be done – and now he's a on paper or whatever you call it these days, you know, on, on cyber, he's a billionaire off of Dogecoin. Um, there's not a lot of rationality behind that, and I've seen the guy himself laugh about it, um, but he laughs very awkwardly because <laughs> um, he's in a pretty good position. And why not? <laughs> what what to say? Um, <laughs> we live in such strange terms and... and I just hope that, you know, you need a sense of humour about this, but you also need to back your own critical thinking and look at that and say, mm-hmm. that's absurd, it's unsustainable. A lot of this is going to fall into a stinking heap pretty quickly and um, and we're going to re- re- return to some sort of normality. Um, mm mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: Have you seen that happen a little bit, maybe? I mean, more and more people are getting critical, you know, and when I um, when I made these interviews for the blockchain film, it was hard to find people who had a qualified criticism. You know, there were a lot of ranting critics of everything, including the central bank and paper money and, and, and um, you know, the state and the governments. And that is just not qualified criticism of blockchain technology.
1: There is some sanity, um, you know, I used to feel quite alone um, 18 months ago, but there's a lot of people that um, have been quite harsh now about blockchain. There's a lot of – there is a lot of just outright cynicism now that says, you know, this, this is no more than a database. Now, I actually find myself not that extreme. I, I, mm-hmm. I absolutely acknowledge that blockchain is not a database. It's more clever than that, but it, it it's much more specialised than any database you've ever seen. Um but, you know, I was at the RSA conference um, last month and the famous cryptographers panel, and it's not just famous because of the cryptographers, but the panel itself is famous. It's been a centrepiece of RSA now for 20 years. And you get the, the absolute gods of this of this field. Um, who do we have this year? Ron Rivest, um, Adi Shamir, Whit Diffie, um, Moxie Marlinspike, um, brilliant people and... Uh, Across the board, there was um, a very sober assessment that blockchain really wasn't something terribly special. And in particular, there are some things that you just don't want to do on a blockchain. You you don't want to um, put health records on a blockchain. You don't want to vote on a blockchain. Not yet. Now, you know, I think the cryptographers need to be listened to because they're sober. Um, They absolutely um, know what they're talking about. But they've also got experience of patience, and, and, you know, they know that it takes 10 or 20 years. Um, you had Ron Rivest on the panel. In particular, you know, this is a diversion. They were talking about quantum cryptography or post-quantum and quantum-safe mm-hmm. oh, algorithms. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And now, it could take 20 years to come up with a quantum-safe algorithm, but um, Ron Rivest himself pointed out that it took 10 or 15 years for the RSA algorithm to take off. Um, so these these things these things take time. Um and I think that you you take that experience and, and it tells you that it's very unlikely that something like blockchain could take off in a couple of years and change the world. You know, the world doesn't change at that rate, um, especially when it comes to cryptography and, and and IT. So we tend to think that that cyberspace happens quickly and we tend to think that you can write code quickly and create businesses. And, you know, my God, Facebook is, what, only 10 years old. So some things do happen quickly, but... Um, You're seeing seeing that in another 10 years of Facebook um, might look really different and um, it might just look like noise. It might look like these fabulous businesses um, come and go ever so quickly. But meanwhile, the actual rate of change of security is is a bit slower and a bit more circumspect. And um, Mm -hmm. maybe the ability for some crypto magic uh, to, to fundamentally change the internet you know, maybe that's
0: wishful thinking is it or maybe
1: i'm i'm reserving judgment um I, you know we we talked about this before i think that blockchain will lead to things that that are very important but even so um you know distributed ledger technologies that transform shipping and transform the supply chain these are these are quite prosaic things and you might you know in another 10 years time you might still not see the internet looking looking radically different. Um, and I I don't think we ne- you know I don't think we need to radically change computing to fix some of the horrible problems we've got. You know, we've we've got digital companies that are taking advantage of us. They're shafting us they're using our own data behind our backs. Yeah, mm. It's it, there's a horrible exploitation. It's not right that the richest people in the world um, have made their billions purely out of data. It's just not right. But I don't see blockchain, and I don't see self-sovereign identity changing that. I, I see GDPR and I see data protection laws around the world, even in the US, um, producing a new order and um, and sort of writing the ship and and producing um, uh, producing a fairer playing field. And I, you know, I don't think that this is going to be a technological revolution. I think it's going to be a regulatory revolution. Um, which is not as sexy as blockchain, and it's not as sexy as sort of a a new sort of libertarian computing decentralized network. Um, But, you know, the lesson is that society really changes. I I think the lesson is that society changes through regulation. You know, we we saw it after the oil oil rush. We saw it after the first industrial revolution. Um, You know, steam power came along and sweatshops came along and child slavery and, you know, children living in coal mines came along, but mm-hmm. um, the the pendulum swung back to a fair playing field, um, not through any new technology, but through through governance and social movements and people voting for what was reasonable. So, I um, it's not sexy, but I think the truth is that the um the the IT revolution is going to get um, corrected and is going to be moderated and mollified by. By social um, change and social institutions and and new laws, you know, I, I think that we're going to get an enormous wave of legal innovation in the next few years. When 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 the importance of data becomes so clear, data is a really re- really weird stuff. You know, it's it's intangible, it's difficult to regulate. But um, I know that there are there there are libertarians out there that say you're never going to regulate data. Well. No, I'm sorry, we, we regulate intangibles like intellectual property and we even regulate electromagnetic spectrum. There's nothing more, to me, there's nothing more intangible than spectrum and mm. um, it's tightly regulated and we buy and sell the stuff um, mm-hmm. and, and fortunes are made off spectrum. So mm-hmm. I'm not anti-capitalist, I'm not anti-entrepreneurship. Um, I think that people should be making a lot of money out of data as long as, you know, that, that bargain is fairer and as long as People making money aren't exploiting others. Mm-hmm. So um, I do think that the next 10 or 15 years will be really interesting. I, I, I think that the, um, let's call it the, the reaction to the, to the internet is still forming and the reaction to the data economy is still forming. And I, I think it's going to be, you know, the, 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 the action is going to be regulatory more than technological.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and maybe also that that reaction is forming with or without blockchain technology.
1: Oh, without you know, the GDPR has got nothing to do with blockchain. Um, again, I, I, I use the GDPR as a, as a sign of things to come. It's a sign of a new a new order, a new um, a new um, um making the digital economy orderly, um, and that's 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 been a long time coming. I think the guts of self sovereign identity has been a long time coming. Um, I, I just think that the idea that that um that better civil rights online. Is is will come from reshaping identity. I, I think that that's just idealistic. I don't I don't think it's going to play out that way. I think that the asymmetries that we have and the power imbalances that we have in the digital economy will get rectified, um, not through reimagining identity, but just through through saying um, there should be controls on the way that personal information flows. There should be controls on the way that people monetize personal information. These these are not new ideas. We've had We've had um data protection laws for decades. Um and they're just becoming more important now because of the transgressions of Facebook and the transgressions indeed of, of surveillance society. Um, people have had enough. They've had a gut full and um
0: Yeah. Well, we spoke about that in, in Silicon Valley last year. I mean, when you said um most people have no idea what happens with their data. And I <laughs> yeah. think it's true. It's absolutely oh. true. Um,
1: Do you so. know the um it was a very interesting case, and, you know, it comes back to Facebook, um, yet yet again a Facebook example. But Facebook has got this weird and wonderful feature called People You May Know. And every now and again the People You May Know um, facility throws up some absolute shockers. So about um, five or six years ago um, a, a bigamist with two wives was outed on Facebook because the two wives got friend requests saying, um, you you probably know Alice because she's a friend of Bob, and Carol got this thing, you know, and then Alice got something saying so you probably know Carol because she's a friend of Bob. Well, it turned out that Alice and Carol were both married to the same guy, oh. and the, the Facebook <laughs> algorithm discovered this. Now, um, I wrote about it at the time. I, I felt that it was only a matter of time before um this algorithm started introducing um, patients to each other, you know, mental health patients and psychiatrist patients, and indeed that's what happened. (laughs) Now, most recently, a sex worker in the United States um, who apparently led a very respectable double life, sex worker and um, a normal business person of some sort, ran a very um, careful, normal, mainstream life, and she was very smart digitally literate person who for years had maintained this sort of second persona, nothing illegal about it. Was it was at pains to, to keep her different walks of life separate on Facebook. Well, she got outed on Facebook. Despite her best efforts, um, friends of her started getting um, people you may know suggestions that that were revealing her secret life. Now, I'm telling this story because it, it was broken by um, Kashmir Hill Um, a famous IT journalist, um, and probably one of the sharpest people in all matters cyber that you could possibly come across. And Cash Hill looked at this case, looked at it hard for months and months, and and she could not work out where the signals were that the people you may know, algorithm, absorbed um, to work out this sex worker's double life. Now, the story is really important because the very finest investigative journalists in the world can't figure it out. And yet the Facebooks of the world tell us that, you know, the world is, is full of these digitally sophisticated um, digerati who are very happy with the way that Facebook works and they're very happy with the with the ad-driven economy and we're supposedly very happy with the bargain that we have, you know, free services, free Facebook in return for data. And, and Mark Zuckerberg will tell you that people are happy with that. It, it's manifestly untrue. People have got no idea what's happening with data. The very best tech journalists in the world can't figure out how Facebook works. And so I think that there's a, you know, I'm going to call it as a lie. There's a really deep, dark lie in social media that overestimates the sophistication of the people. Now, we've seen this before. We've seen it in big tobacco. When you know the big tobacco um, slogan was that people know that smoking is bad for you, they make smoking a free choice, and that idea that people smoke happily was the rationale for big tobacco people saying we're not responsible for cancer. Well, um, I'm you know, I'm not trying to make social media as bad as cancer, I'm not, I'm not making that point, but I am saying that, um, social media companies know that people are not as smart as they think they are. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that there's an exploitation of that ignorance. I, I think that people are ignorant of how Facebook manages personal information. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you are running a business that, that takes advantage of people's ignorance, then I, th- I think that that's really wrong. And, and I, think, I think under consumer protection law it's, it's, it's more than wrong Mm-hmm. And that that could be another really interesting legal battle in the next ten years will be to work yeah. out whether or not people are being taken advantage of, and and I'm positive that they are.
0: But I think what you said there, your Facebook example, is perfect because that opens the discussion for all these people rushing in and saying, "Yeah, but you know, you can use blockchain technology to to switch on certain parts of your digital persona and." And, you know, only these persons can see it and only other persons can see that part. You could maybe monetize part of your data. I mean, what do you think of, the, of that promise?
1: Yeah, there's been some interesting thinking for a long time about um, actually producing some new economic incentives and some direct payback um, for people to um, to do a number of things, to, you know, to, to even up the playing field and to also produce some better behaviors. Um, at the moment, of course, People's privacy behaviors are famously um, counterproductive, um, and we give away a lot of data, and we don't seem to have any um, inhibition or any friction about that. Um, it, and I personally think it's because we're still finding our bearings online. Um, I think that you know being online is such fun. You know, let's make no bones about it: social media, Twitter, Facebook—it's insane fun, and it and it's 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 important at every level. And we've rushed into that. We, we just don't have our bearings in cyberspace. Mm-hmm. We don't have any reliable intuitions. And, and again, I think that Facebook exploits that. Um, so there's been some thinking along the way that if you could produce some economic incentives and that it might produce better behaviour, I think that that's important. You know, another missing um, analytical frame in all of this is, is simply change. A, um, another missing analytical frame is, is change behaviour management. Um, and this mm-hmm. is something that public health people know really well. So uh, I mentioned big tobacco before, but um, certainly um, public health people know how hard it is to get people to look after their own health. Like they know it's really hard to get people to give up smoking or um, it, even to do easier things like to eat properly and to exercise more, you know, yeah right. This is really hard. And um, in security, and with social media, people do bad things. They they seem to become addicted to, to to Facebook, and they seem to give away too much information, and they seem to pick bad passwords, and they seem to take these ridiculous risks online. Now, I think that we need to understand that through the sort of frame of human nature, and um, we we pick bad passwords, we eat too much, we don't exercise enough, and we drink too much. Um, you know, humans do do stupid things, and um. My my brothers and sisters in security spend a lot of time shaking their heads at how dumb people are with their passwords and how dumb they are with Facebook. But we can't blame the victim. Um, we we can't keep blaming people for for bad behaviours online because you know people have bad behaviours in every walk of life. So I right. think that there's a new there's a missing analytical frame there about how to produce better behaviours online.
0: Well, but then again, this whole argument of the companies should police themselves. I mean, uh, uh, no, that's
1: no. I I, you know, we we're going to get market failure. We we get market failure in safety um, all the time. One of the best voices on that issue is actually Bruce Schneier, who's looked you know very cleanly and calmly at um at cybersecurity as a safety matter, and he points out you know very reasonably that we we don't let. Um, auto safety be, be dictated by market forces. We, we know from bitter experience that um, safety will lead to market failures if it's not regulated. So, you know, even the United States accepts quite willingly um, that some things do need to be um, subject to enforceable rules and standards, and I think that we'll come to that realisation about cyber security. And Prish has called for this. You know, before we get into the internet of things, we need to be really especially careful. And, and indeed, self-driving cars. Um, we need to be really careful about security and whether or not we think that, that companies can self-regulate um, for Internet of Things, software quality in the Internet of Things. It's We, we need to have some, just, just as we do with product safety and, you know, um, um, the, the, the safety of children's toys and the safety of food and... Um, you know, we, we regulate food ingredients, we regulate restaurants, we regulate public transport. And I think that mm-hmm. we're going to have to do the same thing with cybersecurity and privacy for sure.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, the, the biggest challenges moving ahead, you think they're not technological, but regulatory, psychological, social
1: well yeah, let's have a balance of these things. Look, absolutely we have technological challenges. I just say that we're not going to fix these problems with new technology. So the idea that blockchain is going to change society is just it's utopian. It's it's really bizarre. We've we've and it, it it it's unbefitting, you know, fifty years of technology experience. We've learned the hard way that you know that you know, you could say that computers change society. Well well only in a very qualified kind of measured sense, we've, we've learned that. And yet people come along, the Utopians come along, they say that blockchain is gonna revolutionize democracy. Well, uh, no, it's not, um, but you know, it is important. It's gonna create some really good outcomes. Um, but I think the overall thing that's gonna be required to make a better digital economy is gonna be more about change management, more about understanding human nature online. Making that, that analog to digital conversion um, this this is really fascinating to me. There's so much work still got to be done on the analogue to digital conversion. and How has the internet changed human nature? You know, Susan Grenfield in, in the UK says that um people's brains are already changing because of the, the way that they absorb information yeah. digitally. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there are some really important outstanding questions there. I, I haven't made up my own mind about that one yet, but it, it seems plausible and You've got to respect Grenfell. Um, so you know, has has the internet changed? The other funny dynamic is that whenever whenever something really good happens in relation to the internet, then you know the Arab Spring, um, and it, you know that didn't turn out to be an unqualified success. But um, the Arab Spring was attributed to Twitter and. You know, the internet was yet again shown to be a a revolutionary force for good. Um, But whenever something bad and dark happens on the internet, like the Silk Road or child pornography or or terrorism, the defendants of the internet will then fall back in a really kind of placid way and say, you know, the internet's just a communication mechanism and terrorists communicate on cell phones and, and child pornographers always... Um, plied their evil trade. So don't blame the internet. And I think there's a really funny double standard. It's, it's a very awkward sort of um idealism that goes with the, the, the good things that the internet does are because of the internet and the bad things that the internet does are due to people. Mm. And mm-hmm. um, I think that that's a real sign of immaturity. I don't think we've quite found our 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 bearings again on, you know, how How important is this communication
0: technology? We haven't
1: we haven't sorted that out yet. So Mm -hmm. I would uh, yeah, that's going to be super interesting.
0: Yeah, well, I think a lot of people are researching that. You know, Um, I'm sure you know this famous uh, Sherry Turkle. Yeah, she's great. uh, Yeah, Alone Together, and and I think it's also a little older already, but um, yeah. It's. I think now, um, years later, people understand and see themselves in these books, right? It's not just game addicts uh, who, who who you know sit in in a gaming parlor for 72 <laughs> hours in diapers who are addicted to these things. It's no. It's many many normal people too. I mean, have you have you found yourself made make a conscious effort to move more of your life off digital?
1: Off from time to time, for sure. And you know, I lo- I love going off grid. Um, I love camping. We're going on a long trek in a couple of months' time. That'll be completely off grid. I, I love it. Um, I certainly try and spend more time in with paper books. And um,
0: yeah. And, um. More time again. I mean, where you moved into ebooks and now you're moving back into paper books.
1: I was never into e-books personally. Um, I'm a I'm an I'm an inveterate scribbler. I'll I'll show you. The books that I'm reading and I'm writing in the margins all the time and I've just never found a way to, to satisfactorily do that with an ebook um, because things get lost and drives crash and stuff so I I, I don't relate to ebooks in a, in a dynamic kind of way I really I love I love paper books i I love my library I love my my magazine subscriptions there's a couple of different titles that I read voraciously every week or every fortnight and um, you know I think that that's important there's sort of uh, you know i um, say i never went to ebooks but i look at them um, things that that some of my kids and and young people are sort of returning to an analog aren't they they're they're um they're listening to vinyl records and they they're buying books and they're buying stationery and they're having picnics and there's a there seems to be a real um, arts and crafts are coming arts back arts and crafts yeah there's a yeah. real sort of value in in the old fashioned stuff which um, yeah i think you know so i'm pretty optimistic about this I also don't, you know, people, it's fashionable now to, to um, decry people that are wandering around glued to their screens. And, you know, there's famous Banksy cartoons of, you know, robot people, the, the screens are turning us into machines and we're, we're wandering around fixated to the screens. Well, I'm, I'm actually a bit more generous than that. I think we're most of those people staring at screens are, are in a sense, are staring at each other. You know, they're connecting their... Um, social media is social I, you know I love it it's, it's clearly problematic and I, and I wish that social media wasn't actually profit driven and you know, I wish the richest people that history has ever known weren't um weren't making their money in the way that they do but that that'll correct itself um, by and large I'm a, I'm a real fan of this stuff and I, and I see people on the bus you know I commute many days and I see people glued to their screens but I think what they're doing is they're connecting with other people or and but it's not it's not an unmitigated disaster um, by any means.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's not. I mean, I I see many people play a game, many people laugh. Right? Maybe they saw a funny picture of something online.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it
0: it it can't be all bad. But you're absolutely right. There are definitely externalities that people aren't um, aware of. Where do you think? All of this is leading in the next few years.
1: Oh God! Look, um, please don't ask me that. I'm not a futurist. <laughs> I, I think that futurists have got the best job in the world, you know, because they're never held, held account <laughs> for their um, for their predictions. Um, and I, I and I do like you know it was it's attributed to Bill Gates that we tend to overestimate what will happen in one year and we'll we'll underestimate what happens in
0: ten. Okay, let me let me phrase it differently. Where where would you where would you like to see it go?
1: That that's um, I'd love to see a digital economy be a lot more orderly. I'd, I'd love to see these fabulous um, things that we get through social media and free search and and free maps. Um, you know, we know that these things are not free. We know that there's an externalised cost. Um, I'd love to find. I'd love there to be models where we can still get these things at a reasonable price. What's funny is that. Um, most of us pay a ridiculous amount of money for our cell phones. You know, my my plan is like $100 a month or something. and It's mm,
0: um, expensive.
1: Even if it's $50 a month um, or, or $20 a month, there's a lot of money. There's a lot of headroom in that fee for us to actually be um, paying for the things that we currently ostensibly get for free. Um, so we don't, you know, I think that there's a lot of room for us to come up with new economic models and, treat some of these things as a utility, um, you know, clearly uh, social media is a utility. Um, it's almost as, as important as power and water and light. So it'll be a long term, maybe maybe 20 or 30 years away, <clears throat> we'll figure out a way of making cyberspace like that. Yeah. Um, Do- I am beginning to think about critical infrastructure for cyberspace. I, I um, You know, I blogged about how identity is dead. Mm-hmm. I, I think the identity management has really sharpened our thinking around provenance of, of, of identity <clears throat> and provenance of attributes. And I'm beginning to think that this is not even about attributes anymore, but it, it's really about all data and the provenance of all data. We, um, we've got a, a society at the moment that's basically um, built on petrochemicals and the processing of crude oil, and we've got supply chains that, <clears throat> pardon me, we've got supply chains that, run petrochemical raw material and byproducts all around the world on ships and pipelines mm-hmm. and we've got standards and rules and laws for 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 distributing that stuff you know this distribution supply chains for for chemicals and I, I i think that we we need to start thinking about what does supply chains look like for data and information and how do we make sure that if I'm going to move data from one place to another and be paid for it, how do, we, how do we ensure the quality of that data or the provenance of the data? So in identity management, we've been thinking about the provenance of attributes for a long time. I, I just want to generalise that discussion and start thinking about the provenance of all data. And then that would lead to a better imagination for critical infrastructure for data. Um, here's, a, here's a wild thought. I mean, poor old Equifax... Um, people are running around saying these data brokers are, you know, their days are numbered. But I actually think that data brokers may be more important than ever in the next 10 or 20 years. And it's not that they're too big to fail, but they're, they're too important to fail. Um, we've got to figure out a way of treating data seriously enough that that we just don't have those breaches um, or the breaches are less catastrophic. So there's two things happening there. If, if data is as valuable as, you know, Facebook knows how valuable it is, well it's about time that, that society and regulators knew the money value of data and, and actually made people invest in proper security. You know, security is run on the smell of an oily rag these days. We, um, it, you know, the, uh, what's a good example? Um, the Yahoo breach mm-hmm. with emails and, and passwords A conservative estimate is that that data on the black market is worth several billion dollars, Um, you know, just a couple of bucks per record with a billion records breached. Now, what was Yahoo's security budget? Um, It's a very, very big company and they've got a good security budget, but it wasn't a billion dollars. The security budget is tiny compared to the value of the assets. So there's something wrong with security and there's something wrong with um, regulators' expectations of what a good security budget is. So, you know, my response to the Equifax problem is, one, the security budget clearly wasn't enough or it wasn't smart enough and we we need to do something better about that. We also need to protect data so that if and when it does breach, um, we can clean it up Um, or we can can, um, neutralise it or we can make data less valuable to thieves. And so all of that thinking to me very loosely um, goes to, critical infrastructure and what 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 does critical infrastructure in the data economy look like and when will we when will we start sort of sketching that out so mm-hmm. I, I um i that that's where my vision is for the next sort of 10 years regulatory mm-hmm. approaches and and better attention to data supply chains
0: mm-hmm. cool yeah i think it's uh, it's a very important infrastructure that's just emerging still um steve do you th- do you think you'll still work with blockchain technology in three to five years
1: um look i think i'll still be looking at it as an analyst and, and so on I, th- I think it's all going to die down um i um i, I don't think that it's going to be as interesting in, in three to five years time i um i just recently um sort of engaged with somebody on twitter who said that um he said that blockchain in the next 150 years will be as important as the internal combustion engine has been for the last 150 years. And and I quipped um, on Twitter that I think the next 150 weeks is going to be very interesting for blockchain, which is to say about three years. Um, mm-hmm. I think that a lot of things that we're seeing now are going to disappear in the next three years. I think that, that experience of 80% of blockchain ideas turn out to be um, better done with conventional technology. I think that that means that um. I think I think that people will really calm down, um, and the outcome will be will be generally positive. You know, there is a lot of reform and a lot of you know smarter use of technology that that blockchains inspiring, and there will be these distributed ledger technologies that are much more efficient than what we've got now. I think there'll be new ways of reconciling databases and keeping keeping databases in sync. And, um, you know, that's plumbing, um, incredibly important plumbing and maybe critical infrastructure. So, um, but, you know, I, I really sincerely hope that we don't have hundreds and hundreds of, you know, ICOs in three to five years' time and people still, you know, this insane sort of money grabbing that's happening with ICOs. It's just,
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's just abhorrent. And, um, you know it's not
0: sustainable i think that that'll calm down mm-hmm. yeah well there will be natural selection
1: <laughs> yeah we spoke about that before there will certainly be natural selection yeah
0: mm-hmm. good um steve this has been really really interesting again i always love speaking with you thank you mate but um thanks a lot for taking so much time today
1: man um, well i really appreciate your, um, appreciate your time and, and energy for this project too it's um, it's just fascinating
0: thanks so much for joining us today more info on our guests and our sponsors is in the show notes of this episode and on the podcast website theblockchainandus.com to help people find this podcast it's important that you download subscribe and give it a top rating and review on itunes or on the podcast platform of your choice i'm manuel staggers and i thank you very much for listening